0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Imperial Beverage Presents Another Round. We're here with Maggie and Jamie, myself, Jacob, and we're also joined today by Jessica from the Northwest Wine Company. We're going to be discussing all things Oregon wine, what they do with their organization, how their practices work, and what to know about the Northwest Wine Company. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Jacob, for having me. Um... Thanks, girls. So happy to be here today and talking about Oregon, which is right on the precipice of Oregon Wine Month, the month of May, which I think we share with Michigan. Um, But uh,
0: just excited to be here and talk about Oregon wines. Thank you very much. And thank you, Maggie and Jamie. We appreciate you guys joining on as well. Yeah, really
2: excited to put this podcast together for our staff to be able to learn and uh, really use our resources. Jessica is absolutely phenomenal and full of knowledge. And so really excited to be here today and have a great discussion. Ditto. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know a I, woman I, of many words. Correct. I I know Jamie came up and she was like, "Hey, just wanted to let you know we're going to do this super cool podcast." Jessica's great. I was I, I, you know I was told that uh, we could do this you know longer podcast. I said, "Well, you know our goal was to keep it between 10, 20 minutes." You know she goes, "No, mm-hmm. no, it's going to be like three hours. Good <laughs> luck. Strap in, buckle up. For sure. It's going to be a good time." So we're very excited about it. Very excited about it. Mike, Don't
2: freak out. It won't be three hours. <laughs> It'll be like screwed and chopped. This
0: whole yeah system. yeah. You know, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll butcher it up a little bit. That's yeah. okay. We, we might turn this into uh, a couple of episodes. So we'll go ahead and start off. Do you, uh, Jessica, do you mind sharing a little bit about the history of the Northwest Wine Company with us? Sure,
1: sure. Um, so Northwest was started by Laurent Montelieu, who's my boss. And um, he was originally, he's been making wine in the Willamette Valley for about 35 years. And so he was a partner at Willa and really put them on the map, especially with the Pinot Gris program. And then when he left there, he took his partnership dollars and really wanted to start an incubator for small wineries. And if you guys haven't, if you've ever looked into it, the infrastructure to build a winery, especially in Oregon, is enormous. It's, you know, it's tanks and barrels and presses and the the bonded building and, you know, then, then barrels are stainless steel and that you haven't even bought any fruit yet, you know, so it's a really kind of overpowering, overwhelming expense when you're starting and especially in a region that is really boutique and small, especially back then. So he started in 2003 um, as a as a place that small wineries could come and and utilize equipment collaboratively, and then use his knowledge to make sure that nothing went sideways. You know, so it's like if you had your entire livelihood in a vintage, and you were just getting started, and you had fermentation is very tricky. You know, and and wine's a living thing, so to keep it alive in a healthy way. Um, so that you could actually bring it to market is an is a incredible talent. So he did that. And, um, and launched a lot of brands that way, gave a lot of people their first leg up. And, um, and then started buying vineyard sites and planting vineyards because he realized that they also needed to have access to a certain quality of fruit at a certain price point, um, and that he could guarantee that if he farmed it himself. You know, I think he was excited about Oregon as well because you can, unlike Burgundy, you can buy so much land. You can plant it. You can do what you want with it. You can experiment and play. Um, so that's where it started. And then and then he started buying really significant vineyard sites, you know, like Highland Vineyards, um, which was one of the great historic large vineyard sites that were planted in the early 70s in the very early days um, by the pioneers of our business. And so that was one that he was like this has a lot of potential. It had been, it had about sixty acres or so planted on it, but it was an enormous site, and so he started planting more of that in two thousand nine, and started the Highland Estate label in two thousand nine, and um, but prior to that the vineyard had sold fruit for fifty years to you know Socal Blosser and. Uh, Christum, terra Nicholas J, Resonance, Double Zero, Lingua Franca. I mean, there there was a, a laundry, Beaufrere. I mean, this like laundry list of rock star wineries that had single vineyard designates from Highland Vineyard that was much like Shea. Um, and so we, that kind of started the Highland process. And then it's just sort of organic after that, like something would come up for sale, he would buy it. He would sell the fruit. We have really interesting pillars of our business. So part of that is we still help wineries make wine that are small. We do that. Another pillar of our business is now we also have things that are national distribution like Westmount and Highland Estates. We also have Selena, which is in another company. We kind of break up the portfolio a bit so it's not in one place. Um, We also have Domain Divio. We have partner brands like Maison Noir and Gothic that we make for really kind of celebrity – wine personalities in, in New York. We make wine for um, total wine, and we do certain private labels for resorts and country clubs and on hospitality. So it's we're now the largest vineyard holder in Oregon. So we're planting and farming about, as of this year, about 1,400 acres in all of the varied nested AVAs of the Willamette Valley. There's a few that we don't touch yet, but we will
2: <laughs> probably. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Reminds me when we were out visiting last June, mm-hmm. Stuart Allen and I um, went out there for an incentive trip and extended it, and we. That's actually when Jessica and I became acquainted, mm-hmm. um, and we had a lot of fun chatting, which kind of prompted this, right? Um, having this discussion and, and using your wealth of knowledge, but um, the warehouse that you bought remind me what it was prior to
1: originally. Um, so originally, the original Northwest Wine Company location was in an old Sara Lee pie factory in McMinnville. And it was, I remember going there, I've been in Oregon 20 years, but I went like 22 years ago on a wine trip. And the Sara Lee pie factory is where they not only made everything, but they froze it. It was a distribution center. So they had huge cold rooms, like massive, huge cold rooms. And, um, Laurent's partner, John, owned that building and they would lease it out for all kinds of stuff. And part of it was wine production. The great thing is with, in wine and especially in the summertime, if you can bring that fruit in and stabilize it cold, it staves off fermentation. Right. And so whenever you have alcohol developing, it's a really powerful solvent. It breaks fruit down really easily, almost like if you toss strawberries in vodka. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They just sort of decimate. Yeah. So this was a way of like really, Having these enormous rooms to hold on to this fruit, and he could kind of delay the start time if he needed to. And I remember going there like 22 years ago, and there wasn't much in the building. And I remember guys like riding bikes and skateboards through the warehouse. (laughs) Yeah, and that's That's the first time I met Laurent. Um, And then over time, it became a wine warehouse. And then they bought it out, the, and so the, now it's the largest shipping component of everything that you guys get comes from Oregon Wine Services. Yeah, which yeah. is the old Sara Lee Pie Factory. In super
2: Manhattan. cool. Yeah, super cool. Thank yeah. you.
1: And then we moved it. We moved our Northwest Wine Company campus now is in Dundee. It's just off Niederberger Road in 99. So you can actually see it from the from the when you get into Dundee, and we have really cool state of the art winemaking facility, our own bottling line, our own warehousing lines, warehousing uh, warehouses. warehouses huge tank rooms, barrel rooms. We have, we do all of this, you know, hands-on middleman cutout. You know, we do it all at our place. It means we have a little more control over the costs. So we're kind of a larger, we're definitely one of the larger producers, but it's broken up into multiple brands in multiple uh, facets of our business, which is very cool.
3: And then for cellaring, is it the same seller crew that works on all of the brands?
1: Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we have, we have, we're 58 full time vineyard and and cellar crew. We're about 50 50 men to women, I think. I need to double check it, but it feels like it when we're there. (laughs) It's like, oh, yeah, there's, it feels, it's probably, it's probably slanted one direction, but it feels pretty balanced when Mm -hmm. we're there. We've got a big crew. Our head of winemaking, Ann Sary, you know, female winemaker and the hardest person, working person at the winery. Um, She'll like bake Macron's in the morning and then go dig a tank out. And, and, yeah. and then come back and be like, my macrons, paddle. You know, <laughs> and, like pulls it out, and then she's like, I'm back, and then digs out a tank. And oh my gosh, awesome. all the boys yeah. just sit in like in awe of her. It's pretty, it's pretty rad.
3: Well, we talked to her in the Women in Winemaking podcast, mm-hmm. and she was very much so like, suck it up, we can do it all.
1: Yeah,
2: that was pretty cool. She definitely has some. Some girl boss.
3: Yeah, action <laughs> she's got on.
1: some moxie, man. She she came to work for Veronique Duran back in the 08 and then um, and then met Laurent. She's been with us ever since, and she is she is she's a beast. She's amazing. Love that. Yeah, it's great. It's great to work underneath her because she's got great instincts too about the wines. And each vineyard site is so individual, you know. So we do, you know, we we really have a lot of control, but we you know we have a lot of different processes at our place. So it's it's really kind of a mecca of wine production in Oregon in, in multi facets lots of things we're working with where most wineries you know 70% of the wineries in Oregon are 5,000 cases or less you know that's that's small. that's really small there's there's single wineries in California conversely that make more than all of Oregon combined you know wow. so if you think about the the and they're just south of us.
2: Yeah, the juxtaposition
3: of Yeah,
1: them. it's really, I mean, 90% of the wines in the United States come from California, and 1% comes from Oregon, and we're neighbors. Um, you guys
3: are still top three for states that produce? In- we're
1: actually, we're, we're almost always fourth. So oh, okay. second and third um, is between Washington State and upstate New York in mm-hmm. terms of volume. Um, and we're 1% on the of, of all of them.
2: That kind of surprises me because I feel like Oregon wines are much more, they've got a broader um, spectrum and distribution than like Finger Lakes. I think there's a lot more
1: wineries for sure. I think the other part of being, we're the only cool climate wine region on the West Coast outside of a few vineyard sites that are in the Puget Sound. Right. And so in, in terms of like an, an actual, you know, nationally shown wineries Oregon is really the only The Willamette Valley even smaller than that is the only cool climate there there's Oregon AVAs outside of the Willamette Valley that are warm that they produce Bordeaux varieties and and Rhone wines Spanish wines but the Willamette Valley is really very isolated in this little spot because of that the the amount of grapes that we can actually ripen in a certain span is really limited um because of our climate and because it's so wet, we get 100 to 110 days from bud break, which happens typically around this time of year, tax, tax time, and then 100 to 110 days till harvest. And so what will ripen in that very small window, the varieties and cultivars that will work there are limited. It's really limited to, to different grapes.
2: So let's talk about that. Let's talk about what grapes yeah. are most prevalent yes. um, and then, you know, kind of where you see that going through time
1: historically to today to potentially the emerging things yeah so if we look at you know the, the Willamette valley is sizable it's 110 miles north to south between portland and eugene and then 60 miles wide between these two big mountain ranges that really the mountain ranges are what really delineate the weather that we have there the temperature they essentially create a big bowl and in the middle of the bowl, we it blocks out precipitation from the ocean on the one side and a, and the high desert on the east side. And so, um, you know, it's a really interesting little chasm of where we are. What will really grow well there out of that, the whole Willamette Valley right now is three and a half million acres, but only 27,000 acres are planted. Of that 27,000, 70%, which is 19,000 acres, are Pinot Noir. So 70% of the planting is Pinot Noir. The next down from that would be 4,000 acres, and that's Pinot Gris at about 15%. And then next down from that is 2,000 acres total of Chardonnay, and that's 10%. And then you kind of really dip down into like the, you know, single digits of things, Riesling, a little bit of Syrah, um, Pinot Blanc, a little bit of Gewürztraminer. I mean, it's really pretty lean, mostly what I would consider Alsatian and Champagne varieties, which also falls into Burgundy and northern Germany.
2: Yeah,
1: You know, so, you know, initially it was thought it was going to be the new Rhineland. And so if you look at the plantings from the 70s, a lot of it was Gewurz and Riesling that and Müller-Turgau, surprisingly, oh, that got, cool. yeah, and Pinot Gris. I mean, Pinot Gris was in there too. Like all of the, if you look at all the Alsace, everything from Alsace. Makes sense. It was kind of, that was the start of it. And Pinot Noir is also grown in Alsace, so that went in. But a lot of those plantings those Mueller-Turgow vines and things got switched over into Gris-Chardonnay and Pinot Noir over time.
2: You know, you hear a lot of people referring to Oregon and Willamette as um, being Burgundian in style versus, mm-hmm. you know, your neighbors to the south in California um, where it's, you know, a warmer climate, riper fruit, higher alcohol, um, more more fruit, less earth. So what is your your take kind of on that Burgundy reference that happens a lot with Willamette.
1: I think it's a great compliment. I think it comes from a very good place. It's a great compliment. And I think where there's synergy in that conversation is in acid, right? I mean, both of those we're talking about two cool climate regions. It's almost hard to really compare to a warmer climate region like California. But it's a great compliment because it's the mecca of where the best and oldest vines in the world are. Right. We love that. You know, that's a and we have a lot of influence from a lot of our Domestic American winemakers have also spent a lot of time all over the world working in other places. Maggie, you're you're one of those that have you worked all over? No,
3: California, just
1: California and And Michigan.
3: Michigan. Yeah, see that's great. But you're like,
1: but I think that's you know we also have huge influence from the international public that have come in. A lot of winemakers and wineries have established homes in Oregon for that same reason. They can actually buy land and plant it. They can farm it the way they want.
2: Do you think that's why a lot of Burgundy houses own property in Oregon? Because you think about some of the major brands, and a lot of them do have holdings I think in Oregon, no. yes.
1: I think that is one, one. I think that they understand there's a quality level in Oregon that right. is somewhat similar to Burgundy. And I think also, if you're going to have an extended portfolio of brands, which this is what I'm seeing today, you see we have a lot of champagne houses that have invested in Willamette Valley, other big companies that have come and invested. And it, it's because it's a sound ad of a luxury level of your portfolio. Right. So, to answer that earlier question, we. We do have a lot of things in common with Burgundy, but if we get down to like the, the even the basics of soil, like we look at Oregon is actually really acidic. It's a it has really low pH in the soil. Um, part of it's because it's a really young part of the country. It was underwater 200 million years ago, and it, it got you know through tectonic shift it came up. There's a lot of volcanic activity, but it, it's a really young part of the part of the world, and the soils are super acidic. And if you compare across to Burgundy, and look at those soils, they're lime, chimeragine clay, marl, Mm -hmm. you know, chalk. And those are, if you look them on the pH level, they're alkaline. Mm -hmm. So that affects, like, so what they're growing in is different. The composition of soil is different. And then the viticulture that you have to plant material, the choices and the viticulture that you have to do in order to play to that is different. So I think we have a lot of things in common with acid. I think we have things in common with complexity. And part of that is, you know, just lack of ripeness exposes a lot of that. So I think yeah, I mean I think we have a lot of things in common, but there's we're truly Oregonian. And there's a really there's nothing I really am proud of of saying there's a truly Oregonian style. Yeah. Of wines.
2: I would agree. Yeah. I would agree. Um, so for our sales staff to just kind of talk about some of the differences in flavor profile that you would get out of an Oregon Pinot and a Pinot coming from Burgundy, so people can kind of understand that yeah. when they're when they're talking to their customers.
1: Yes. I think this is going to sound like a kind of a silly analogy, but it, it struck home for me. So I'm going to say it if you need to cut it. It's totally okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. So if you ever go, do you ever go in the morning, you get berries here. What kind yeah. of berries do you get here? lots blueberries oh, lots of cherries. Yeah. raspberries blackberries, blackberries. Yeah. so this is going to work go? this is going to work it's going to work so if you go in the morning and you go to where you you know when when berries are ripe they look ripe and you and look when it's still cold and you pull a a berry off let's say a blackberry and you get it in and you get it kind of has that like crunchy snap on the outside of it but inside it's a little underripe like this could have had another day yeah that little bit of sourness that reminds me of burgundy mm. Same time in the morning, same bush, you get a different berry, and it's right on the button where it's ripe. It's a little, it still has acidity, but you're like, this is really good. And you bite into that, still has the snap, the crunch on the skin. That's Oregon for me. Okay. Same bush, same day. Later in the afternoon, sun's up. Hot. Okay. Fruits warm. Pick it, stains your hands, right? Skins, California. <laughs> can, skins aren't snappy, really juicy. Same bush, same everything. But the fruit's warm and juicy because it's, it's just warmer in the day. Skins are softer. It's California. And that's, to me, like, if I think about the tension that acid leaves and the generosity that sugar gives about ripeness, that, to me, shows the balances between those wines. There's nothing wrong about them they're all from they're all the same berries from the same bush but they just have different parts of their of the the picking day the picking time the ripeness level is different from each of those things from one to one and that's really what it is there's so many things that we can i'm making like a a, i'm making artwork with a roller right now like i'm making very broad wide brush strokes of something that is really complicated on some level that has it's I'm kind of painting a macro picture of a very where lots of micro decisions are in play I think that where we if we look about if we talk about soil and geology there's a lot of blanket statements that we can make what is absolutely true is that California is in fact warmer climate than Oregon which is not quite as warm as Burgundy in terms of What's planted there? Those are all individual decisions based on what is, if we go from the roots up, what's the soil composition at that site? Which is very, all the unique pixie dust of each site is, you know, every vineyard site is a unicorn. It's a snowflake, right? They all have their own personality and soil. And part of that conversation is what's the water holding capacity of that soil? How much drainage does it have? What's the elevation? What's the slope? How much sun do you get? Is there things around you that inhibit wind and water or things that don't right that's your terroir that's your particular terroir that's just the start and then now you have to have the viticulture what what leads into the architecture of that that vineyard right rootstock plant material trellising spacing that's another conversation which then leads to viticulture how are we going to farm it how are we going to irrigate it when are we gonna how are we gonna do the trellising? What's the pruning schedule? What's the spray schedule like? How much green harvest? How much of how much of all that? How how what how is this vineyard gonna perform? It has to get old enough to tell you. Mm-hmm. Right? All those things are part of that conversation. You know, the clones, the trellising, all that stuff. What applications do you do? And that you haven't even harvest any fruit yet. <laughs> yeah. Right? So then the human condition comes in, right? The human part of that. When am I gonna pick it? when's the perfect time for me pick date makes a huge amount of difference in the resulting wine then i'm going to bring it in how am i going to am i going to put a whole cluster or press it or or destem it how much whole cluster how long do i leave it on the skins for how hard do i press it how long do i ferment for do i cold crash it how much do i want to use native yeast do i want to use inoculated yeast we can talk about that native that stuff and then that's like now we're going to finish it I'm going to put it, do I put it in t- stainless steel or do I put it in barrel? How long? So all of these things are these like, it's like artwork, you know, it's like to, to try and paint it. I don't want to, I want to be genuine to it and I want to be thoughtful about it because it's someone's livelihood. We think of chef, of, of winemakers almost like chefs now, Right. They're they're creating this tangible artwork that has to hit all the senses, and then we judge it.
2: <laughs> you know? it's, it's we deeper it. than just the painting. It's like mixing your own paint.
1: Yeah, ex- right. Absolutely. Like it's
2: it's from top to bottom. Yeah, it's, it's
1: well, a whole wholly created medium that is uh, it's out of your hands. That's the other part. You know, it's really up to what nature does,
3: and you get one chance a year to do it. That's right. So, like, you could be working ten years in the industry, do ten harvests or more, but still say well, I've really only made this wine 10 times. Like, I've made this Pinot Gris from this vineyard 10 times. I'm just figuring it out. So a lot of times it's like you don't hit your stride until year four or five of you even making the wine to figure out, oh, yeah, now we do 50% stainless steel, 50%, you know, barrel fermentation. And figuring out that aspect of it takes so long that really, like a vineyard has to be planted for 10 years before you get a wine that's like, oh, I get it.
1: Oh yeah. It's it's fascinating. It's such a good yeah. it's mm-hmm. such a good way to put that Maggie. It's it's um it's exactly how I feel about it. So I like I, you know, as a sales and marketing person, you know, I've like paint these big pictures, but I'm I'm not ever taking the risk like everybody else is doing all this like very risky work and it's it's their livelihood. And we have so many people that Oregon, I can say, is a place that people put their hands on it. It's got human touch all over the place. That all the tending, there's some done by machine, but the majority of it's done by people that are out tending it. So it's an honor to represent them in the you know their their artwork and their their craftsmanship. It's pretty impressive to sell those wines. It feels like an honor to me.
2: Yeah, and earlier you you mentioned it being living and breathing, and I think that's something that you know people they know but they don't always think of wine as an agricultural product there's so many things that go into it this isn't just something that i am creating right it's it the earth is giving us this to us and we have to treat that correctly and tend to the soil in order for the vines to be healthy in order to have healthy fruit in order to make a delicious wine so i think that for me that's something that i'm really Mm -hmm. passionate about i grew up on 11 acres we had you know a big garden and fruit trees and asparagus patch and berries over you know like I just think that mm-hmm. people sometimes they're oh this wine is delicious but not like thinking back to all of those things that lead into the fact that this is agriculture
1: it, it is and it's such a good point to make it's like 90% of it is what the what the, what the the year gave you what the vintage gave you right. you know and it's one of the few alcoholic beverages that are like that Yeah. You know, that you don't you know, most of what we have is really manipulated, you know, by by people, which is great. They created something out of what it wasn't before. This is taking something that it is and taking it forward. Um, So I, I, I feel for that, too. I think that's it's a cool way to look at. It's a cool way to look at production on that.
0: Thank you very much for joining us for part one of The Oregon Tale with our guest Jessica from the Northwest Wine Company. Tune in next week for part two. And until then, cheers.